doing okay. I'm glad to be in Austin. It's good to see you. Well, your, your trip into Austin was a little bit um, uh, complicated. I had a little incident on the plane. Um, I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, years ago, I passed out on a flight once. And I know it's not very fun. And you had that experience on the way in town. So we had to move this from yesterday to today. And I appreciate you soldiering through. Absolutely. Who knew there were uh, bags of IV fluid that United just flew around with? But I was grateful to get one of those on the flight yesterday. Yeah, so. and we're we're glad you got one <laughs> so you could be here. I'm hydrated. I'm ready to go. Hydrated and ready to go. Um, it's good to be in your neighborhood. I mean, I hear these things about... You know, down south, there's a church on every corner, but you guys took it literally. I mean, I just driving yeah. out here. It's a it's a literal thing right here in this part of Austin. Okay, Todd, you're in D.C., D.C. area, and you're, you're from Arkansas. I am from Arkansas, yes. But, like, D.C., you're working there a lot, and I feel like somehow you would have forgotten, but, like, Texas is not, it's not D.C., it's not your home of Arkansas. Yep, yep. It's, we're unique. It's, it's amazing. I love it, mm-hmm. and it's great to be here. Yeah. And, we uh okay so for my listeners Todd and I met years ago probably 19 2019 I think did you have a trip that year Yeah I've I mean you have trips year, every year yeah. um I was fortunate enough to get to go on a Telos trip that um Todd obviously runs that's the organization that you started was it six, 15 years ago Yeah yeah Greg Khalil and I co-founded Telos back in the winter of 2008, 2009, we launched formally just in January 2009. Mm-hmm. And if you've listened to the podcast for years, you've been on a handful of times, and I always feel like I say, Telos, Telos. I feel like you put a different enunciation emphasis and a different syllable than me, but I'm going to keep pushing through that, which is the right one. Well, some of us on our team, including Greg and I, who founded it, say Telos, but we'd actually, it's a, it's a challenge we've had trying to create some consistent internal communication about how to even say our name. It's an ancient Greek name. I know. I, I took seven semesters of (laughs) of Greek. (laughs) I feel like I should say it right. But then again, I've been married 20 years and my wife says that even though I've been alive for 42, that I say my own last name wrong. So well, there, there you go. And how, so how, are we gonna, how are we supposed to know how the ancient Greeks said anything? Because none of them are still alive. So. Yeah, and it's all Greek to me, like they say. Um, nevertheless, you've been on four, four times, five times. Something. You've been on a, a bunch, including one time we were able to actually record um, over there. We were from a hotel room in Israel in Nazareth, I think. You and Jason Miller and I did a, yes, yeah. a really fun uh, conversation. Yeah. Jason introduced me. Uh, to your to your work and uh, so just brief recap for those who don't know you were in the political space you worked state department for I also feel like I say Condoleezza's name wrong Condoleezza Condoleezza right yeah well I, I I came to DC to work on the hill I came up from Arkansas and spent 10 years working on Capitol Hill and then I spent six years in the Bush administration as a political appointee at the state department and so the last four of those years I worked on the policy planning staff of Secretary Rice if I just said Secretary Rice, I could there you go. You say that because yeah. I'm all in my head about pronunciations now. Okay, so you did that, and then 15, 16 years ago, you and Greg. Now, Greg is uh, a lawyer born in the States, Palestinian descent, That's right. correct? Yep. And you guys decided you're going to start this organization because the political sphere isn't what you were going to spend the rest of your life working on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, I mean, it felt like th- this is a... A, a vexing foreign policy challenge for the United States, but it functions like a domestic political issue. And so if you really want to have impact on it, it's not necessarily necessarily through Washington directly, but it's through creating culture that helps shape how Washington sees it. 
And we had a very different idea because because it's a domestic political issue, you have these sort of organized camps in the U.S., the domestic political version of what's going on in the conflict. You have a pro-Israel camp, which is often very anti-Palestinian, and a pro-Palestine camp, which is often very anti-Israeli. And all that can feel very good because you're cheering for your team and all that. But in the end, that kind of zero-sum advocacy sometimes unintentionally but but contributes to the perpetuation of a very broken reality and the perpetuation of conflict. And so our work was to say, could we create a space that's sort of in between, a community of people who could expand their aperture enough to open up their hearts to both Israelis and Palestinians to really understand that there's no good future for one people in the land without a good future for the other, and then to try to create American interventions that that were more aligned with those folks trying to figure out how to how to respect everybody's connection to the place um, and not give the thing over to the zero-sum folks and the extremists like we're seeing right now um, in this attack that just happened on Saturday. Uh, and so to, to allow space to be created there that would cultivate a better, more just, more equitable reality for everyone so that they can what we say, live together in, with security, dignity, and freedom in equal measure. Mm-hmm. And so you started this organization. People like me got to go on trips where we spent almost two weeks uh, learning and understanding the experience of uh, Israelis, of Palestinians, and seeing the ways that the conflict has affected and impacted them in very pronounced ways. We were able to go into the home of one family who was just in the shadow of uh, the wall and an Israeli family uh, literally went into her uh, bomb shelter. I believe we had a meal there first or after and got to hear their experience and and see literally how they would have bombs that were like parachuted. Am I describing it somewhat accurately? Yeah. Parachuted over into their neighborhood and got to meet Palestinians who... uh, when I was there, the way I remember it is there was one family who opened up their home to us, had a beautiful meal, and weeks after, months after, that their home was going to be taken away from them because it was going to be, uh, I forget the terminology, but it's basically reassigned mm-hmm. away from Palestinians to Israelis. And yeah. so it was a very formative experience for me. And so all that is background to say when what transpired, was it uh, last Saturday? Yes. Um, I was taken back to this experience Mm -hmm. that you had led me through. And last week I was trying to formulate, how do I say something or excuse me, earlier this week, I was trying to formulate the words to say to our church as we think about this, uh, knowing that uh, this Sunday was already scheduled to say the opening prayer in a Farsi service that we have, which is made up of mostly Iranian Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of our elders who is Iranian, who had already asked me this Sunday, Hey, would you say the prayer for this? And then we have, uh, three Iranian Christians are getting baptized in our service. And I'm thinking through, okay, we're talking about this, knowing that th- th- the Arab world is all impacted by this. Anyway, all that to say, there's a lot going on in my head. And so I think, Todd, I need your help. So I send you a text. I say, Todd, can we do a podcast this week? And you say, I'm going to be in Austin by chance this week. So let's get together in person. Yes. You're here, honestly, because you had a trip that was canceled. Yeah. You I were supposed to be leading a trip right now. And, um, and I, it was, we, I was flying out on Saturday and all these things began to unfold Saturday morning. And I woke up to the horrific news of the Hamas attack. And then immediately, of course, flights are being canceled and we canceled. We had two trips that were starting on Sunday and Monday of this past week and sort of canceled those. So I'm here. You're uh, here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're safe. 
what were you thinking going? What if your flight would have been on Friday or yeah. Thursday? Well, if, I had a wedding in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, on to, to, to go to on Friday night and Saturday. And so that's why I didn't leave on Friday. So if it hadn't been for my son's, one of my son's best friends getting married, um, you would, I would have actually gone on Friday. I would have either landed literally just as it had all commenced, or I would have been turned around at some point and sent back. That some flights, you know, turned around uh, wow. and didn't land. But I probably would have landed right, right as it was happening, uh, had it not been for the wedding. Um, but just I woke up to one of the most sinking feelings I've ever had. So I mean, one of the things I always love about being with you, Luke, is that we both have a lot of fun and we talk about serious things at the same time. And it's harder today to be light or jovial or, or joke yeah. thing because I, um, I just am carrying such enormous grief and pain right now because, you know, for the last 15 years at Telos and longer than that, I have developed a deep sense of relationships with Israelis and with Palestinians and, and have been tethered to the horror of that of of these events the last few days by the fact that there's so many people I care about on all sides of this um and it's just it's been heartbreaking it's been heart-wrenching because it feels like so much of the work people there and here have tried to do um is is this is the antithesis of all of that and it sets so much back backward in time um, and that's always the, you know, when you're doing the work of peacemaking, as we're trying to do, um, everything can get lost in a weekend, as we always say, when violence breaks out, when it finally, and, and that's what we have right now. And there's so much that is lost, um, that's not lost forever, but it's just, it's a very, it's a very difficult time for so many people. Uh, and so much of the, 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 the vision for a, a, a different kind of future, um, we're in a, we're in a very difficult spot. Yeah. On a personal note, the the families that you know, the people that you know, Palestinian and Israelis, that you graciously shared your relationship of them with people like me. Uh, I mean, do you make phone calls? Are you yeah. do you have a network that's checking in? What, what's... Yeah, no, we we well, we have local staff, Israeli and Palestinian, and then we have an, a wide network as you were introduced to of partners and friends and people that we know. And so we've been checking in with folks regularly. Um, and at this point, everyone that we know personally is safe, but everyone is, you know, traumatized and shattered by what's happening. So, you know, it all started with the with this really brutal and violent attack by this group called Hamas that has been in control of the Gaza Strip for the last 15 years. And they, th thousands of Hamas fighters, you know, broke through the barrier in 29 different places, um, crossed the border into the south of Israel and and killed at this point over 12, it looks like more than 1,200 Israelis, almost mostly civilians, uh, including women and children, and took a number of people hostage, including women and children, uh, back into the Gaza Strip. And it was the most, um, you know, it was, a, it was the most brutal day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. So this is a, a, a very searing, traumatizing event um, for anyone who's Jewish around the world, because it's not just an incident, it's connected to historical pain and trauma, you know, um, yeah. and generational things. And then, it, and then 
um, the response to that has been, you know, Israel with its very um, sophisticated and powerful military has determined to destroy Hamas, the agents of, of this massacre. Um, but Hamas uh, operates in a very condensed territory known as the Gaza Strip. 2.3 million, 2 million people live in this very small postage stamp of real mm -hmm. estate. Uh, in one of the most densely populated places in the world. And so a, a, a massive bombardment campaign has begun um, to take out, you know, targets in Hamas, but it's it's nearly impossible to separate official Hamas targets from just civilian populations. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're already seeing a really high death toll of Palestinian civilians and that is only expected to grow tragically exponentially in the days ahead as it looks like there's going to be particularly potentially a ground invasion wow. and so israel's response to this is going to it's going to be i mean there's been an ongoing series of of sort of cross-border wars between israel and the hamas and other groups in gaza for some time and there have been a number of of casualties through the years but we've seen nothing like what we're seeing right now and what we're going to see in the days ahead. So it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a yeah. Can we just step back for just a second to give a little context? Some of my listeners, uh, maybe they've heard of the Gaza Strip or they've heard of the West Bank and, yeah. and we hear Hamas, the term tossed around a lot. Uh, can you explain the two main areas, Gaza Strip, West Bank, and it seems that the, to say that Hamas is the Palestinian perspective would obviously be an overstatement. Can you explain Gaza Strip, West Bank, and also uh, Fatima? Fatima. Yeah, compared to Hamas in yeah. terms of the relationship of the people. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll, it's really important that you're asking these questions. It's it's really hard because we are in a moment that feels very much like post 9-11. Emotions are incredibly high searing pain and shock and all those sorts of things. And so in a moment like this, many of us aren't ready for historical explanations or the understanding the context We're just, it's too raw. Yeah. So I'm, I'm entering into this gingerly knowing that, that for maybe even many of your listeners, this it's too, it's too raw and it's too hard to start to hear about the sort of context in the history. Having said that, many of your listeners are obviously really asking questions. What's really going on here? What yeah. help me understand this? And that's what we're trying to do is give some, you know, give some educa some education if you will around that. So the, so just starting with the basics of this, Israel was created in 1948 in a war, um, but it, Israel had accepted a United Nations partition of this territory that had been known as Palestine, uh, and the UN had offered uh, the UN had taken control of the territory after not long after World War II from the British and had offered to give this Zionist Jewish project a state and one for the Palestinians who lived there. And the, and the Palestinians rejected it. The Israelis accepted the UN offer. Um, that's a whole complicated story itself. But a war was fought, and when it was over, the modern nation-state of Israel was kind of created and was recognized by the United States and other countries around the world as a as a legitimate, you know, member of the family of nations. And many of the Palestinians who had lived in this territory of Palestine, including what became Israel, were displaced in that war. 
Um, some of them stayed behind, and today they, they represent about 20% of the citizens of the state of Israel itself. Most of them became refugees, and a lot of them ended up in these two places that became Palestinian enclaves in this land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. And one is called the West Bank, because it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. And the other ter- territory was the area around an- this ancient city of Gaza, called, and they called it the Gaza Strip. And so for, since 1948, there have been Palestinians that were living in these places before in, in Gaza and in the West Bank, but, but they, they were joined by a lot of refugees from, what, from inside Israel. So the Gaza Strip particularly was uh, a place where a lot of refugees went, and the population since 48, I think, has historically been supermajority refugees or descendants of refugees. So it's, it's always been 60-65%, I think, today of, this, of the people who live in Gaza are the descendants of refugees from 48. When you're saying refugees, you're saying people uh, who were displaced, who were living in the area that the UN reallocated to Israel. Yeah, and living in the area that Israel ultimately took in the war. Mm-hmm. They were living in what became Israel, and so they were displaced during that war. Some of them fled, some of them were forced from their homes, but when the war was over, none of them were allowed to go back, mm-hmm. and so they've stayed in these places since then. So Gaza has been um, this you know, place, again, that's always had... A, um, a very restive population because these are people who don't want to be there. I mean, historically they, they, this is no. not our home. We want to live. Why aren't they leaving then? Um, well, it, it's very, it can be challenging to leave, but, but you know, people don't leave for lots of reasons. And for some of them, it's just the, this is, we have the right to, they believe they have the right to return and sure. they don't want to leave. But for Gazans, it's been really hard for many years to even get out of Gaza for any purpose. So it's a much longer story, but um, the Palestinian liberation movement that ultimately began in the 1960s to try to to sort of liberate historic Palestine, uh, as it was just that was the mission of the original Palestine Liberation Organization that began in the 60s. Um, ultimately, after many years, led the Palestinian national movement into peace talks with Israel in the 1990s around the idea of creating two separate states, Israel and Palestine. And the Palestinian state would be these two enclaves of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, with Israel being what was you know, conquered in 1948. And so um, that movement led to this peace process, which was supposed to set up a two-state solution. Not, every, not all Palestinians agreed with that. Clear majorities did in polling and every other way, as did clear majorities of Israelis, were supportive of that effort. But there was a resistance movement that, had, that really was born in the late 80s, um, in opposition to this Fatah party, which was the what you were referencing, the Fatah party was the the political party of the Palestine National Movement, the PLO, and um, the opposition to that was an Islamist movement stemming out of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt called Hamas. And Hamas did not want a two-state solution, and Hamas didn't want compromise. Hamas wanted to reclaim all of this territory between the Mediterranean and the Jordan as a pal- as Palestinian land and to have it be observant of Islamic law and so forth and the, in, the, in the same model of a Muslim Brotherhood kind of uh, mm-hmm. ideology out of Egypt. And so they, there was this competition between the two of them, and Hamas took the lead on opposing these peace accords, the Oslo Accords in the 90s. They were involved in suicide attacks uh, throughout the 90s, became very you know, known for those kinds of, ac- for those kinds of ac- um, actions. And ultimately, we're, we're designated a terrorist organization by the United States, mo- most European countries, a lot of countries around the world. Yeah. And in 2007, they, um, they actually overthrew the Sfata party that was internally in control of, the, of Gaza, even though 
ex externally, Israel still controlled all the borders. Israel moved its troops and its settlers out of Gaza in 2005. In 2007, Hamas took control of the of the Gaza Strip, so sort of fracturing the Palestinian leadership into two camps. One is in control of the West Bank, the Fatah Party, and the other is in control of the Gaza Strip, which is Hamas. And Hamas has ruled for the last 16 years. They've ruled the Gaza Strip pretty ruthlessly uh, as a internally, and then they have uh, been in this kind of ongoing back and forth relationship with Israel, where they um, try to you know f to force Israeli action by lobbing rockets onto Israeli towns in the south. So you visited a town on the Gaza border called Natif Hasara, mm -hmm. which is right on the border. Yeah. And you met with a woman named Roni Kadar that you referenced. Roni has been for many years a peace activist there, building relationships on both sides with Gazans and her, herself and Israel, Jewish Israelis, doing all sorts of other advocacy work around peace, around trying to get people to a place where they understand that there is no military or violent solution to this conflict that it the only the only choice they have is to learn to talk to each other and find out what can be agreed on yeah. um, and that can sound so naive and at some point some people have told her that you know you're just being naive when someone told her a number of years ago um, after a really heated time um, that you know he said you know you just don't understand all these people meaning the people in Gaza, all they, all they understand is force and violence, and we have to just keep bombing them until they stop. He said, you're just being naive. And her response was, you know, you know, I think you're being naive if you think we can just close Gaza off. Because when, Israel, when Hamas took control in 2007, Israel enacted a very tight blockade in cooperation with Egypt around the Gaza Strip, air, land, and sea. And so they control what goes in and what goes out of Gaza, including the movement of people, goods, and that sort of thing. It's not fully closed. There are tunnels that have been able to smuggle things in. But the, the border has been largely sealed off air, land, and sea, including the people, since 2007. And uh, you have a whole generation of Palestinian kids who've never had a chance to leave, the, you know, leave their home. And her point was that it's naive to think we can just in that closure and then dump bombs on them every couple of years and they're going to come begging for peace. And she said, you know who else is naive are those guys in Hamas who think they can keep raining down rockets and missiles on me and civilian populations here in the South and we're just going to pack up and leave. I mean, her house has been hit before in the 2014 war. One of her farm workers was killed in that war by direct hit by a rocket. She, you know, she's, She's paid a price and she's continued to be this voice for like, I'm not naive. I'm the only realistic one here. Hmm. And the tragedy of it is that here we are all these years later, that view has not taken hold. And on Saturday morning, she woke up to the sounds of sirens alerting them to go into their safe room, their bomb shelter, which is in every home in the south of Israel. And they're gathering there and she calls her daughter who lives in the village um, where she does. It's a small, it's a very small community. And she called her daughter, and her daughter, as I'm told, was hiding um, in a small closet underneath the stairs with her children uh, and whispering to her mother that there were Hamas gunmen in her house. Mm. And you can only imagine the terror that, that Roni and her, and her husband felt knowing that their daughter just next door was you know, hiding with their grandchildren with gunmen in their house. And thanks be to God, they were safe and Roni was safe. But there were 15 members of that community, Natif Hasarah, who were murdered on Saturday. So Roni is, uh, you know, this amazing person and, but, uh, and safe, but 
no doubt badly shaken. Um, and that's where so many of our friends are right now in different ways because most people there know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody without the question of who was murdered or kidnapped yeah. in this whole thing. Another amazing peace activist named Vivian Silver was kidnapped, um, a woman in her mid-70s, uh, and is, is, is hopefully still alive in Gaza right now. So, that, that, I mean, there's, there's so much more history than I've just given you, but that, that historical overview and the, the kind of context is, again, can, make, can be hard to sort of take, all, take in right now, but I really do invite people to, to learn more about the complexity of this situation and learn more about what all has sort of gone on and led up to this. And what I want people mostly to come away with is knowing that trying to ask questions that help you understand is it's a safe thing to do it does not mean that you are affirming what happened i mean it's like it's what what hamas did on saturday is reprehensible it's it is evil i've heard the president of the united states use that language i'm always a little nervous when political leaders start talking about you know good and evil because sometimes that's for up uh, for their own purposes but this was an evil act. It was it was horrific, and it has to be fully denounced. And that and so nothing nothing really nothing defends it. Nothing justifies it. Nothing can fully explain it except some in some ways the 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 evil that men do. And yet you can't but but it's important that you try to understand the whole larger story of Gaza, the all these years of closure and isolation and deprivation. And, you know, these it has been predicted for a long... This was a grand intelligence failure on some level that Israelis didn't see this very large coordinated attack because coming. Because it's, it's been predicted something like this would happen But it's been years. predicted for a long time that this is not a sustainable thing. The Hamas and, and to some to the extent, the government of Israel felt like this was a sustainable project. And yet it's it, this was... You can, you know, you can with you can look back with hindsight, but you could, but many, including people in the security establishment in Israel, have pointed out again and again that this actually, um, that no one predicted this particular thing to happen, um, but that something, yeah, this was not sustainable, and something was going to blow up because it had been continuing to blow up, mm-hmm. and. And again, it's not to just not to justify anything that happened. It, it doesn't. In fact, I think this sets back the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian national movement a lot. Um, it's been it's it's such a horrific thing. But it, Martin Luther King taught us that you know that that a riot is the is the language of the unheard. And if if people if no one is listening to the demands of a population. Um, and they have no recourse of grievance. You just don't know what people will do. But it's sometimes it's not what they will do. It's what will they not do. And that's what we've seen. We've seen the most horrific, inhumane behavior by people that it can't be defended or justified. But it does, make, it does bring that point home that we have to at least ask our, remind ourselves is that when, when a people has no other option, and especially when they then are captured by an ideology that um, that is very maximalist as the Hamas ideology is, um, then you, there really aren't sometimes limits to what people will do. And we have to figure out how to best create conditions in which these realities don't 
exist. And I guess the last thing I'll say just on that is that I think there was a feeling that this could, this was sustainable. The, the whole, because the world, the Western world and to some extent the Middle East has largely ignored Gaza for a long time and just kept, tried to keep things on some level of calm without ever changing the status quo. And that, that proved not to be true. And it, it, it could be that extremists are emboldened by these kinds of conditions and empowered, I should say, by these conditions more than diminished. And I think the, the thought was that you can diminish the extremists by making life hard on the, re, on the people there. And, and in fact, I think you empower them more when you, when you, do, when you engage in a policy like the West and the, and, the, and the Arab world has engaged in even toward Gaza for the last 20 years or so. It seems that with this issue, there's a lot of people who have lots of opinions and opinions all seem to be very, um, like very tweetish. Like, it's just like, here's a little thumbnail to solve the problem. I saw one, uh, parody account say, uh, Hey, I just heard about Israel, Palestine. Here's my five-step solution to solve the problem. And those sort of attitudes seem to get thrown around a lot. We, we started this podcast two o'clock and I was just leaving my gym at one o'clock and between one and one ten, when I was uh, changing to come here, I had two pe- three people reference what was going on. Here's what we should do. This is what should go on. How can you say this? It, it's why, um, why we do that is a very interesting question about our, our culture and the effect of social media and the way that everyone has to have an opinion and everyone has to have a hot take. Um, but more importantly, not just why we like that, but how do we move past the sort of simplistic stuff to actually become empathetic people to understand, obviously 1200 people lost their life. Your friend daughter had armed soldiers in their house, terrorists. Um, like these are clearly wrong things, but how come we just devolve to these thumbnail attitudes and how do we move past that? Yeah. You figure that out and we've, we've yeah. made a giant change in the world. It's the, it is, it is the giant question that, one of the things that we literally we've we've tried to take on at Telos, there's a Supreme Court justice from the early 20th century named Oliver Wendell Holmes who said something like, "Simplicity on this side of complexity is worthless, mm-hmm. but simplicity on the other side of complexity is of great value." Yeah, and so we all want a simple take on everything, and we don't really want to do the work to figure out what the yes. simple truth is, yeah. and because it takes work. And so, you know, I have I have a good friend who's. Um, a musician with a large platform and he, but he's really allergic to, to sort of speaking out publicly a lot because um, he's concerned about, you know, the way in which so many people who just cause they have a platform, they have their immediate hot take on issues and they are always, you know, putting their opinions out there that in some ways that are often very unformed. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they said, you know, they sound good and they, and they have a lot of following. And my point to him was I totally agree with that and the celebrity culture and how, you know, people can do that. But, but, but some artists have done the work, you know, and he's, he's one of those guys who's done the work. And I said, you do actually have an ability to, to say some things because you've actually gone through the complexity enough to have some simple understanding. Um, so th- that's, that's the thing. People really need to be willing before we have these just clear and clear-cut views on everything, we need to sometimes really be willing to do some of the work and to realize that life is its way more nuanced than it is 
clearly always black and white. Mm-hmm. And some of that can come with age, although it's not doesn't necessarily come no, with being an older person. Yeah. But it can. The more the more life throws at you, if you're open, you can begin to appreciate that things tend to be. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that are gray, and and that's okay. And sometimes we have to muddle through some of those things, holding fast to a few things. And then we can get some clarity, but it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't come in our, it certainly doesn't come in our soundbite, social media culture. It doesn't come in our whole model of news business, you know, the, the cable news business that is built on quick sound bites and the little, you know, things that scroll along the bottom yeah. and the way you get people on just to fight with each other. And, and there's, there's very little effort to try to create nuance and understanding in the way, in the diet of information that we're fed both from American cable news and other news outlets and social media. It seems that part of what you've done in your work with people like me is you invite us onto a trip, you get us for two weeks to enter the complexity of what's going on. It is very, it's very like concussive, like it, cause you're just like hit on multiple sides of, Oh my goodness. I really care about the Israeli experience. This is so heartbreaking. And you go to, uh, Yad Vashem and you see what in some ways was behind the UN's designation of this land for Israelis. And then you go, well, what's it like for a Palestinian person who's literally losing their home in a couple of weeks. And what do you do for these, um, these amazing, parents who've lost their kids in this this tragedy of, of, of fighting back and forth and you just go ah, ah wow I, I don't know anything and then people like me find ourselves needing something simple to say because this sunday we have to say something to our congregation yeah. we have to have some time of prayer and i have it in the background to go i know my iranian friends who are in this building uh, who are part of this church who are invested in this community have their experience as arabs in the West now vastly different because of the way Iran is in the background or maybe not so much in the background of this sort of conflict. And so if you're going to coach me up on like, what do I say? How do I honor and, and serve the experience that you've given me, but also pastoring my church? Like, what do I do? Well, first of all, let me tell you, your Iranian friends will tell you they're not Arab. So they'll be, they'll be offended if you call them. Arab. Oh, really? So I need to cut that out of the, (laughs) you may want to cut that out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're, I mean, they're Persian, they're Farsi, they speak Farsi there and they're definitely, they see themselves <laughs> as, 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 um, you know, a, a much older, more superior culture to the Arab mm-hmm. world. So. And this is why we practice. <laughs> we work through our stuff. We workshop it so that on Sunday you don't say anything there offensive you to, you uh, your friends. Yeah. And that's, that's why I let you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Well, what do you say on Sunday? How do you, how do you, how do you shepherd a people who come from different places on this, who may be reacting to it from you know, in a, a variety of ways. I mean, I think what we what we what we need to try to do better is to, in a moment of tragedy like this, that is not over. It started last Saturday. If you want to start this, the immediate crisis, uh, you know, it started way earlier than that. If you want to really go backward in time, but just starting with last Saturday's tra- tragedy and the unfolding stories that are coming out over the last few days about what happened in the south of Israel and the civilian murders and the kidnappings and all that. And you see now the death toll rising in Gaza, where there's been a complete and total blockade. So electricity's cut off, no no food, water supplies are being let in, and to a population that is you know again over two million people. Uh, so you've got a humanitarian crisis, you've got war, you've got violence, you've got people dying, and many of them are civilians. And so all that's going on, and so people 
are coming to you on Sunday with a lot of emotion around this, perhaps. And, and who knows, some of them actually have personal ties to it. Um, on, it could be on either side of this. And so holding that in, is one thing. And then trying to help people open their hearts to see the world in the way that God sees it, in which what we're seeing in the Middle East right now is the exact opposite of the world that God intended and the way God intended us to live together. The war and violence and bloodshed and all of it is the, is, is the completely counter to the shalom of God, to, the, to that you know, original creation order of men and women living in right relationship with God and each other and the natural world and flourishing in justice and peace, that interconnectedness, the wholeness and unity of shalom. Um, Mother Teresa said, you know, if we, for, if we don't have peace, it's because we've forgotten we belong to each other. And mm. there's that, just a simple, simple truth of the interconnectedness that we have with other people. And even when our neighbor is our enemy, Jesus said we, we still have to love them. And he's suggesting that there is an interconnectedness even when we have a neighbor who's an enemy. Yeah. Um, and so I think that helping people widen their aperture and say, you know, it doesn't diminish the pain and sorrow and sadness I feel for Israeli deaths and the tragedy in Israel to also be deeply sad and grieved for the Palestinians who are dying in Gaza right now. Yeah. And it doesn't diminish my sorrow for the situation in Gaza for all these years of closure and now the, the one more war and this one maybe the, the most brutal ever. It doesn't diminish the sorrow I have for Israelis to, to be sad. So, yeah. and, and to be able to, to see the world, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, because there are parents mourning the loss of children. There are people on both sides that are mourning right now. And, and it's, it's a very human thing to do. And it's a very, um, it's very consistent with how Jesus taught us to see the world in the Beatitudes, I'd say, which is this window into how really God, God's economy is, is so clearly laid out in, in that Sermon on the Mount and on those Beatitudes. And so to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and to, to see ourselves as peacemakers in the world and to, to remember that God's vision is a world restored. It's shalom restored. And that's the work that Jesus came to do. And that's, it's the now but not yet of it all that we still live in a world that's very beset by violence and broken by you know what we call the fall, but that God is about the business of making things right and he invites us to participate with him in that. And he invites us to always keep our telos, our big vision, our big aim, the, his restoration of all things in which even enemies can flourish. Even mm -hmm. enemies can be reconciled. And, and we can lose sight of that in the passion of a moment like this uh, of, of brutal, brutality and violence and death and horror that, that that's not what God intended and the world that God intended us to live in um, is a world that's whole and restored in which even enemies can flourish. Yeah, there needs to be something where it's not just the simplistic, oh, I stay with this group of people right. sort of thing, where it's like, I'm going to sign something, and that's this is the side I'm on, as if God isn't on the side of every person. That right. seems to be so naive, whereas the vision that Christ has, even to love your enemies, is something to say... I, I am aligned with the kingdom of God That's and right. the kingdom of God includes all in the citizenship yeah. that it cares for. It's everyone. Yeah. And one of the things that you taught me by bringing me to, uh, it was a farm. I think they, 
uh, olives were their, uh, their, their thing. And they had trees bulldozed down years before. Can yeah. you give me the name of that place? Yeah, it's called the Tent of Nations. The Tent, and outside of the Tent of Nations, there was, it's like a stone or something where there was something inscribed where it's like, you are not my enemy. Yeah, we refuse to be enemies. We refuse to yeah, be enemies. Etched in stone at the entrance to this Palestinian farm in the West Bank. And they've endured a lot of enemy behavior. And and somehow they just keep doubling down on this you know this uh, this means of resistance that's entirely nonviolent, but it's also unwilling to accept an injustice, and so they stay and they plant and they grow and they build mm-hmm. uh, in the face of enormous adversity. Um, and that's such a model. It's such a beautiful model for all of us. It's a it's it's a prophetic voice that sounds similar to um, our friend from the south of Israel who said. I'm not the one who's naive because I believe yeah. in this, but I think violence is naive. Yeah. I think that is the the exactly. most naive position to take, that exactly. violence is somehow going to solve this. Yeah. We've seen thousands of years, 6,000 years of human history or however long it's been of violence not solving the problem. Yeah, and absolutely. And you have this great line uh, that you said last time we talked about um, the pessimists have all the facts. Can you, can you give me the line? That- well, people often ask me, and before this week, even, you know, are you, you work on Israel-Palestine issues? Are, are you optimistic? And I always joke and say that, like, of course, I'm not optimistic. If you read the news lately, I mean, if, but I don't I just choose not to peg myself on a scale between pessimism and optimism because I feel like the, it's an unfair fight. The pessimists tend to, tend to have all the facts. And I choose something called, you know, sort of the scale of hope versus despair. Exactly. Yeah. And this week it's almost impossible not to despair. So I can't tell you I'm living in hope this week. Uh, it's a very despairing week. And that happens. We can all fall into despair because the brutality of the world is such, whether it's our personal lives or the world around us uh, is such that it's hard to not sometimes despair, but we can't stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to, we, you know, we were talking before we got on, the, on the call here um, about, you know, human beings need humor and hope. And, um, and I think hope is, it's, it's, it's critical for our survival, but it's not the same thing as optimism. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Hope is an active thing. Hope is what you do. You live and act in hopeful ways in order to allow a different future to emerge. And as a Christian, I think we have a particular mandate to do that because we have an eschatological hope that God is making all things right. And we are called to live into that hope as ambassadors of reconciliation, living counterculturally in the world. So, yes, we resist evil. Evil should be resisted in the world. But we also embrace God's love for all human beings as made in his image. And so we, again, we, we, we weep with those who weep, no matter who they are, no matter which side of these conflicts and borders they live on. That's, that's, not, that's not opposed to the idea of resisting evil and violence. It's also important to know that violence can be many things. It's, it's obviously the brutality that we have seen uh, in, right now and that we're seeing in, you know, in wartime. But, but violence can be anything that robs the human person of their image-bearing nature. And so there can be whole systems of violence. Jim Crow segregation was an, an evil system of structural violence. So it had real expressions of physical violence and direct violence at times, but it, absent the direct violence, absent you know clan hang, you know uh, people being lynched and things like that, um, it was a structural system of violence. And there are structural systems in the world that are um, a denial of people's humanity of denial of people's image bearing nature and i would suggest and this is a very controversial thing in some circles to say in this heated moment 
But I would say that the, the, uh, the closure and the sealing off of Gaza for the last 15 years has been one of those structural forms of violence that we need to understand. As So violence takes many forms, and we, we need to be willing to, um, to oppose all things that rob human beings of their image-bearing nature, and at the same time being willing to resist evil. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard you connect justice and peace, that the idea of peace without justice is unrealistic, and to think that you can use justice um, without peace, like, they, they just have to be dance partners. They, they go together. And as we think forward about next steps and what should happen and what should go on, uh, I hear you making the connection to 9-11, because in the wake of 9-11, where many of us found ourselves in this sort of age of technology, having a voyeuristic celebration for the response of violence um, after 9-11, where you could literally watch it like a movie and see the bombs and go, okay, th- these people did this to us, and this is what we're going to do back. And now I hear... Um, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, I guess it's been a year and a half at this point now, um, uh, service men and women, specifically combat veteran friends, processing their sense of despair over, I invested my life into this, I lost friends over this, and it didn't seem to solve the problem. And we see how many hundreds of thousands of people lost their life after 9-11 and you even have Jeb Bush, George W.'s brother, making comments when he was running for president six years ago, whenever that was, talking about how we should have done things differently. And so it seems that if we've learned anything from 9-11 is one, it, it was awful and we all hurt and we lost something, but to jump to knee-jerk reactions after it doesn't create a just and peaceable future for anyone. That's such a, a, an important insight. I mean, we've been long told that violence begets violence. Yeah. And that simple truth, which is ancient and comes to us from the prophets of old, uh, along with these notions of peace and justice, um, are, are always available for us to lean into and learn about and think about and remember. But, but we've often forgotten that. And I, I think for me, I was working, um, on Capitol Hill when the Afghanistan and Iraq war resolutions were passed um, in the immediate aftermath of September 11th. We you know, went to war in Afghanistan. A year later, we authorized a war in uh, Iraq that began in March of 2003, the very week I started to work at the State Department. So I arrived the mm-hmm. day before the Iraq war started. It's a great time to begin a career in diplomacy, <laughs> the day America starts wow. um, a, a, a war, a preemptive war um, in the Middle East that forever has shaped, shaped things and um, and for me, it was a journey. Um, but seeing that war prosecuted over time uh, took me from one place to the next to the next. Um, but what it really settled in on me is the limits. We, we really are not willing to appreciate the limits of violence to achieve good ends. So there are Christian pacifists in the world and non-Christian pacifists as well, but there are theologies of pacifism. And it's, it's a gritty thing. It's way more than just, I don't, you know, I'm just not violent. I mean, like the pacifism is a whole way of living in the world. And I respect it. I can't ever work my way fully there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I'm, I'm certainly still in belief that we, you know, that sometimes only 
force is able to protect innocent and vulnerable people. But I think we have, we have, we have way over depended on the use of violence and force to, to force our will into the world and without, with almost no consideration for the consequences of that. Every time we use violence, um, we create, we may kill one enemy and we may create five more. Yeah. Um, I mean, just on some practical level. Um, and, on, and then there's the whole another moral level of, of, of using violence as well. But I, I think that's such an important thing for us. Not, post 9-11, you know, again, was so, there was such agreement in the country. There were definitely voices of dissent that people weren't listening to, but there was bi- wide bipartisan agreement sure. on you know, prosecuting these wars. And we were all caught up in that, in that moment. And none of us were willing to listen to some of those voices who said, this is a bad course or this, you got to think about these things. Those were largely diminished. And this could easily be another one of those moments. We have the benefit of more than 20 years of hindsight now to look back and see what we might or might have done differently. I mean, you think about all those generations of Americans that we sent to war in Iraq and Afghanistan who've been, who are continuing to suffer, those who came home, who are continuing to suffer injury and trauma and PTSD and other things from a result of their service. And it's, it's, and you look and you see, you know, the Taliban's back in control of Afghanistan. I mean, yeah. what, um, and so we, we really do have to be more honest and sober about the, the, you know, the ability of violence to achieve good ends. And the church has to own its own participation in that because the church can be at the front of the line. You know, we have taken just war theory, which has real constraints on, when force can be used and we've we've often been willing to make that fit almost any cause that we felt like was you know important sure. to our national project and so the church has been very participatory and this is historic it's not just you know in it's not just the american times. church either. right yeah right and but but the but the church has not been as consistent on its keen understanding of the limits of violence to achieve good ends either and uh, so I think that's that's something we really need to self-interrogate on and wrestle with and do something more. Yeah, and it, it's it, it it's so difficult, um, and it's easy to go. Well, yeah, of course, Luke, you have a great opinion on what we should have done twenty years ago because I have two decades of experience and I have firsthand experience of people who've been over there and tell me their experience. And we, but we're not playing this in in a rearview mirror which is what everyone wants and that's um uh that's unfortunate but i feel like your point about what the church is doing is is the important question for especially me like and this is the world that i live in i'm not a policymaker i'm not the one who's having to make these decisions i'm not the one who sent um you know a massive ship of war over uh to the gulf over there um and obviously the the comment that stands out to me was given to me an hour ago uh, by a friend of mine at the gym and dear friend love him to death and he goes Luke I'm really sorry but I think religion is the the root of this and you know I would quickly say that religion becomes a mask that many people wear on multiple sides that leads to this sort of behavior but religion has definitely been in the mix of this and I think that's why I hear your work as being so central to being with people like me religious leaders who help us imagine a different way of participating in a conversation like this as many of us are trying to be peacemakers in our own way if if you're trying to say this is one thing that you could do to help change the conversation, what would that be? 
Well, I mean, I think we have to draw deeply on our own understanding of what Jesus really taught us and how, and what it means to be his disciple in the world and, and realize how countercultural that is. I, I, my, my work for a long time that with Christians and TELUS works with some non-Christian communities, but most of my work has been with Christians and my, my work has really been to help Christians embrace peacemaking as central to our discipleship journey and peacemaking as I define it uh, over time is, big, is the, the, the way I like to talk about it is it's the way we pursue justice in the world that's oriented toward healing and repair. So a lot of people want, as you said earlier, want peace, but they just want everybody to be quiet. But Dr. King taught us that, you know, that peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of justice. The Hebrew prophets taught us that first. And yes. go back and read that. But, um, but the other side of it, there are a lot of people who want justice in the world, but they want justice for just us. They want, I mean, they want to, or they yeah. want to burn the house down and they don't have an oriented vision for a world that's more whole and more healed. And they don't have certainly a vision for a world in which even their enemies could flourish with them as Dr. King did. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much we can learn from our own history, again, from our own Christian tradition, from the Hebrew prophets, but also from, you know, like the black church and from Dr. King and so many others about what it means to live this out. And so if Christians could more centrally embrace peacemaking as, as a, a, a very key element of our discipleship journey and realize that it comes with cost. I mean, there are people who've paid with their lives who mm-hmm. engage in the work of this kind of peacemaking. Again, going back to Dr. King and, and many others, but most of us aren't in any way going to be called to pay with our lives, but we, we may pay with our, our reputation, relationships. My wife keeps joking about, you know, like there's so many conversations and relationships and dinner parties I've made so uncomfortable for her just because <laughs> of what I do. Like so many things we don't get invited into just because of what I do. It's not popular to, 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 to do the, these kinds of things in the world and say these kinds of things and to hold these things in tension and hold them together in the way that we're trying to do. And so th- there can be cost to this. Um, and I think we're not, we have to be remembering that, that that's what it can look like is we may have to pay a price as well as we, um, you know, advocate for people who no one is advocating for as a key to understanding what true peace and justice could look like in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm working on trying to get a podcast with our old friend, Tom Wright to talk about some of the uh, theological undergirdings. The conversation hopefully will include that uh, because there's some theological undergirdings that help, um, bolster uh, some of the political impulses that some Christians have, which I think might be a helpful conversation. So try to get that uh, organized in the future, but um, I'm not going to make you do that for me right now. Uh, We'll just let, let Tom do that later. I think you'll be in better hands. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Todd, I think we're all in good hands here in your experience. You've taught me a whole lot. Um, You've been a great resource for me, for a lot of people. And so uh, you seem exhausted because you've had, uh, unimaginable um, last two weeks and I'm really sorry for how this impacts you personally um, but I'm deeply grateful for the work that you're doing and the way it helps so many of us it's great to be here in Austin with you it's been been good to be in your presence and in your community um, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're continuing this conversation it's really important so thank you well thanks man appreciate it